Today, we are starting a new series uh, on our show, uh, showcasing some of the um, younger, newer um, uh, acts in town, um, uh, musicians, vocalists, bands, etc. cetera. And um, uh, I wanna thank uh, Jamima Brady for um, calling my attention to Crucial who I really didn't know about. You know, I used to know about every artist in town. I used to know what was going on because I used to produce music and do a lot of events. And I really took pride in knowing who all the backup artists were and so on and so on. But, you know, you get a little older and you don't go out as much and you just don't know. So um, I'm really happy to hear about you. And I've listened to uh, some of your work. And what has struck me about it is it's very what I would characterize as heartfelt, heartfelt. Oh, I like that. So it's 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 real, um, and it is warm is a word I, I want to use. Um, it is uh, appreciative of place of your city. It's appreciative of the people that you deal with. So you strike me as somebody who kind of cares. Yes. So I need to know, um, you know, if that is an accurate depiction and in, in how you feel about yourself. Oh, definitely. I definitely care. Like, I think that's part of even my name, though it wasn't intended with the intention of it being me being crucial. It's kind of what I was doing, like the way I was executing my music. People were calling it crucial. Well, one person in particular was calling it crucial at the time, and that's kind of how I got my name. But now I'm starting to realize that Crucial has its own importance in itself. Mm. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's it's a great it's a great uh, uh, name, and it took me a minute to go through the way you spell it and, <laughs> and figure it out. But I, I did figure it out, and I was impressed with the the selection of that word. Um, tell me just a little bit about how you started in music and um, kind of the context of your life. What part? You know, you know, in New Orleans, we always have to go back to, um, you know, where did your mama live? What neighborhood did you grow up in? What school did yeah, you go no, to? Let's just rip, rip right through that. Oh, that's fine. Um, I was born into music. My father is a professional musician. His name is Tony Gillich. He's a bass player. He's played with Dr. John uh, Henry Butler, Irma Thomas, Vestad Jackson, like everybody. And my actually, my younger brother and sister also both do music. One of them, my younger brother is Kevin Gullich. He was just on American Idol recently. And he's currently on a Disney tour and wow. on a cruise ship. My sister, her name is Karis Gullich, and she is playing Donna Summers on the National Donna Summers tour. Whoa, so okay. Music. Uh, I started recording rap and everything in... 2007, I believe, while I was still in high school. Wow. Um, I was the first person in my family to make hip hop music. So it was kind of a different offshoot from the rest of the more traditional styles that were going on. Because uh, my brother and my sister are both also NOCA graduates. So their, their skills were able to be honed. I kind of had to find rap and it found me at the same time. And then I was able to navigate through it. Um, now, uh, I made the observation when I was talking with Jamima about this earlier that um, I felt that um, uh, you do rap, but it's a very different kind of rap than some of the really harsh uh, rap and, and some of what I even go so far as to call on this, kind of on the trashy side, in a sense, and it has a deliberate um, intention to do that, um, reflecting uh, an attitude about uh, things that you have no control over, et cetera, et cetera. But 
But again, yours is, um, again, I want to use the word heartfelt uh, and, and more um, about love, about life, about your song about life and work. Uh, is a good example of that. I was really impressed with that one. I love the one, of course, about New Orleans also. Um, so give me some, a little bit of background about how you arrived at that particular um, approach to your music and your messaging. Uh, I don't know if, it, I don't know if I would call it intentional when I was trying to do it. I was just trying to make things that I saw every day because a lot of, a lot of the, you know, darker sides of life that may be reflected through Black American music might not always resonate on every angle. A lot of the time it's more survival physically than, you know, than uh, I guess dealing emotionally. So I was kind of, you know, I was making songs about what I was real life going through. It was a whole lot of romance. Like you said, a whole bunch of love, a whole bunch of uh, only being able to appreciate your city because sometimes that's all you really have to motivate you and keep you going. So it kind of, I don't know, it turned into that. It's just more reflective of, of who I am as a person. And um, I don't know, there's just different angles of, of where you talk about it. And it's very interesting that you, like, you know, you find the heartfeltness in it. And I kind of really, really appreciate that because some other people feel like because of the way I, you know, express myself in this music it can sometimes kind of be a little trashy in the same thing uh, i didn't i didn't i didn't get the trashy at all i really didn't um i mean it's sexy uh especially the videos the videos are pretty yeah. sexy no doubt about it but um no but i didn't even it even in the sexiness i didn't feel um that it you know what i'm talking about i mean the yeah. harsher stuff is um uh just plain old cold, harsh. And, and uh, your stuff is not that way. I, I can't resist asking this question. Forgive me, audience, uh, for those of you who don't buy this stuff, but what does your birth say? What is my huh? birthday my sign? 1017, I'm a Libra. A Libra. Okay, because I was going for cancer, which my husband is, and he's kind of a loving kind of guy, and that's what I have a cancer move. You have a cancer moon. Okay, that's it. I, I, that's sort of, <laughs> uh, right? yeah. What's your rising? Uh, I don't even know. I just okay. know that. that one. That one really doesn't matter because that's just sort of how you come up. My off. Scorpio friend, uh, she told me that I was I was a Libra with a cancer moon. She 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 did all the the findings on it. Okay. I fed number three. So um, you've now recorded um, how many uh, songs? Uh, it's since 2007. Yeah, approximately. I, I, we, we lose count because sometimes these songs are throwaways on the fly. We in and out of towns making songs randomly. I hear things all the time that I forget I even made. Wow. So you're very productive. You really do um, generate a lot of uh, work, uh, both live, I assume, and recording. So that's impressive. How old are you? Yeah, right now I'm 29. Okay, you you've got some years on you, so you so you probably do have quite a few recordings. Mm -hmm. And um, how do you feel about the New Orleans uh, cultural scene as a place to work? It's not the easiest. I mean, we're not you know we're certainly not New York. We're certainly not L.A. Um, Atlanta. Uh, you're comfortable with your potential to get where you want to go here. 
Uh, yes, but it's in learning how to navigate that I understood what my potential could be. Because potential still doesn't mean you leave one thing planted one place and, you know, hope that one day a miracle happens. It's kind of learning how to navigate the, the, the idea of what it means to be in the music industry, not necessarily just be an artist, you know? Right. So right. it's like, I don't know, I want to do music for something like, like a happy feet or something, you know, like a, a, a major thing in the music and entertainment industry not just making you know the songs because the songs don't really pay it's everything that works around it that helps the business to keep flowing right how do you keep in touch with what's going on outside the city because not everybody i, I one of the things i'm originally from new york and i've been here for more years now than i lived in new york but um i lived up until i was 30 in new york so that Gives you a little hint of how old I am. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, uh, I think um, there's there's a, 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 a it's it's harder to get things done in a way here. I, I always say that um, Art Neville's the one who's credited with the expression "the big easy," uh -huh. and my husband uh, says, oh, maybe the little difficult." <laughs> You know, this is a harder place to get things done because there's not as it's not as entrepreneurial a city. We don't have the capitalization that you have in some places. So how do you track what's going on beyond our borders, which is something a lot of people don't do, and integrate that into how you plan your music industry participation? You know, ge our geography used to lock us into a lot of places and decisions and mindsets we used to have to have. But because of there's social media and because like so many things are readily available to, you know, the mass popular. So it's like you can you can look even if you glance for a second at what people might be doing in Baltimore. It might take you a little bit of research. You might have to do the same kind of diving that might be required for you to write an English paper or do any type of research thesis and stuff like that. But if you look, it's all there because because artists are always trying to get their stuff out. So every day that you exist, there's another artist that also exists that's trying to be heard. So as long as you keep looking and not, you know, getting too lost in what's presented, you'll always find what's new. It's almost yeah, like you keep, you know, keep to your own program, even mm -hmm. though you're looking at other people's work. Um, but I'm curious to ask uh, of other people's work. Who would you call out? Who would you give a shout out to as somebody um, whose work you respect, whether it's like, uh, has any relationship at all with what you do? See, one of the beautiful things about it is I'm a part of a collective called Global Warming. And these are all some of the most talented, no, these are all by far the most talented artists I've ever met in my life. Like from here or anywhere else. So it's uh, me, Pale, Sleaze, Dom, Latranium, Alfred Banks, uh, Daylight, Addy, we still affiliated with other people like Tank and everybody, so it's beautiful. Matter of fact, we did Jazz Fest last week and I just looked at the footage and I'm like, wow, Tank is uh, is in the back behind me singing a song I wrote. That's crazy. That That's crazy. crazy, I love that. So yeah. Tank is one of, um, Tank is one of the few musicians from, your, from the younger um, generations that I caught by accident at, a, at an event and uh, I actually had her and her whole group on my radio show um, a couple of years ago. And it was one of my favorite shows that I ever did. Her, her, um, the piano, the pianist, who's also, I guess, part uh, does produ production for her mm -hmm. I was, or arrangements for her was really impressive. And the whole group was. And I just, 
I'm kind of crazy about it because it's totally different. I really respect originality. And that's another thing about your work that strikes me is that um, it, it doesn't try to be, um, again, the more hard driving. It really tries to be more, again, I think, as you said, representing you and your life and how you feel about things. And, um, you know, quite frankly, I would have to say that I bet your music really resonates for women. I mean, you have a lot of <laughs> fans that, uh, is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I do. You know what? I do have some, some pretty loyal women fans. And I'm, I'm discovering that now. Mm -hmm. I'm discovering that now. Like, Not yeah. just here, but beyond the, again, beyond the borders. All over the place, yeah, all over the place. You're touring. You're you're, and you're touring? Oh, we just finished the tour. We got back from the tour last month. It was the Am I Still Dreaming tour with Phil. We went to 10 cities, uh, California, Seattle, Chicago, Detroit, uh, Colorado, New York, Atlanta. We stopped back here for a Buku Festival. That was one of the nights on the tour. Well, that was really awesome. Tell me about um, the, the, the response you're getting, the reaction you're getting from uh, people as you tour, because I think people have certain expectations about artists from New Orleans. And I would say that, again, you're slightly different from what people might expect. So tell, tell me how people respond to you um, on tour. I love it. As far as what I can see, they love it. I feel like on what? top of everyone being kind of inside, I feel like I said they love it. I said, on top of everybody being inside for a while, like, and being super excited to get back to live music, the show we provide is not a regular show. It's, it's kind of high energy. It's very interactive. It's fun. It's super enjoyable. What do you mean by interactive? Like, you know, sometimes I feel like people sing more with the music and less with the crowd, or they might be not as engaging with everything around them, because, you know, it is easy to get caught up in your performance and get lost in it. Like, so it's like, we, we you know, we, we look at people when we're making these, when we perform this music, we kind of pull See, them into the show. That goes back to what I'm saying about this kind of loving, caring thing uh, about you. So um, how, uh, tell, give me your vision. Where, how, how do you see going forward? Um, what are you trying? What's your mission? What are you trying to achieve? Do you have like a timeline? Um, how are you thinking about your your musical career and your again your message? I feel like you definitely are putting out a message uh, going forward. Oh, definitely promoting love and positive vibes. Not only positivity. I'm not ignoring everything else going on. It's just you know you choose with which weapons you go into battle with, and everybody's you know all fighting their their battles. They're just going to it with different things. So I'm just trying to use you know the positivity I. I already use regularly for myself and just kind of just let that be what influences my life and I'll let my life influence people through what I make so it'll be about things that I feel more things that I love rather than things that I hate you know because that's just you know the way I'm designed to express myself uh, as far as the future definitely looking to continue to put music in, in film. I got my first documentary placement last year in a documentary called The Neutral Ground. And that was about, you know- Oh tonight. yeah, I know about The Neutral Grounds. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. It was, so I got a song placement. I think it won an award, didn't it? It, it definitely won an award in the film. Yeah. I was like, ah, oh, that's crazy. I keep wanting to do that. So that's like how you can maintain success and continue to network, find 
different and bigger families to place your music in. Uh, like Pell had his, his song in Tom and Jerry, and this is a song that he already had in like seven other movies and shows. It's like what you can do with real syncing instead of sitting around and just waiting on one of the stories you told to, you know, change your life. You got to change it actively every day. And, you know, that's the feeling. That's how you love something. As you, it's, it's a plant. You know, you got to water it. You got to tend to it. You can't just set it and forget it. That's not how you get real, real flowers. Wow, I love that analogy. That's a great analogy. Um, yeah, I find some days it's really hard. I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll say, I'm, I'm going to be positive, but I have kind of a critical edge to me. And so I get into a, a bad mood by noon because something's not working out right. And then the day goes down the, down the plumbing. And um, um, it's hard to maintain that positivity sometimes. You don't always have to be positive. You have to really work at it. You don't always have to be positive, but you should always be proactive. Like even if you're not as positive, you should always work on being proactive because your feelings aren't always the facts and you're allowed to feel how you feel. That is fine. If like some days I personally do not get out of bed till 11. Days like today, I'm out the gym at 8.30, 9 o'clock. Like, so I can say, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a balance, it's a juggle. You're not gonna feel the same way every day. You're not gonna look the same way every day, like, yeah, but you get an opportunity to continue to try to do your best. And that's all you can really do is your best. Just do your best, that's it. You know, it's interesting. I have to tell you um, that you remind me in a certain way of Alan Toussaint, who I have interviewed over the years and worked with over the years. And his interviews are very philosophical. <laughs> and um, uh, I find that you, again, you're, you're, you're communicating that, that philosophical foundation that you work from. And um, I wish I could tell you, uh, probably on YouTube somewhere, this one of the interviews I've done with him and you could hear what I'm saying about it because he was um, even more so uh, very philosophical in how he spoke. But um, I appreciate your work and I really um, want to track it. And I want you to keep me informed. Now you have an event coming up on the 19th. Hello? Oh, did you, it froze. Oh, uh, he was just into the wrap up. Um, so, uh, uh, Jimmy, uh, let me uh, uh, close with uh, the time of uh, his event. Okay. The Crucial is having a event on May 19th at Gasa Gasa. 21 plus doors open at 8 p.m. Featuring artists are CBEs, Blue, Cali Pop, the Adani Pell, and then sounds provided by Saint Ambis and Gazi. We lost you for a second. Yeah, it froze. <laughs> so I asked Mamie to fill in, and she just she just gave me the details. So, um, anything else you want to say about your event that's coming up on the nineteenth, real quick? Gasa Gasa, less than three live with a band. It's gonna be beautiful. There are gonna be shirts. I have some vendors coming out. So um, yeah, 21 and up, show starts at eight on time. So be there if you can be there on time. I would love to see you there. You are who I'm talking to. Yes, you right there. Thank you. <laughs> I've got to work on my uh, hands. <laughs> All I ever do is this, but I feel like this about you. Thank you so much. Good luck, have a great show on the 19th and keep going and let me know what you're doing. Keep, keep informed, okay? I appreciate you so much. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. 
Eric Johnson is um, pretty much my favorite um, go-to person for matters involving conservation, especially of our bird population, which is really threatened. And every article I read about um, our bird population just freaks me out because it just seems so endangered. And um, I don't really understand truthfully whether there's uh, anything that we ordinary citizens can do about it or not. So um, I'm very interested to hear from um, Eric on, on what's going on and um, what role if, I mean, obviously climate change in general is, is something that's happening and I'm sure that's a, a big part of it. And we de definitely humans are contributing to that. So, um, I mean, I know we can start there. So I'll, I'll just say, Eric, what's going on yeah i know it's it's uh well birds birds are really good indicators of our our natural environment right so they're great indicators of air quality water quality land quality and um a really important paper came out a couple of years ago in science magazine uh where a whole bunch of different data sources were analyzed and something like 3 billion birds have disappeared from the United States and Canada since the since about 1970. So that's about 30% of all of our birds. Oh my God. I mean, that that's the kind of a number it's, that it's, it's me getting scary. right with, but that is just so horrifying. Is that has that yeah, happened and before? Do we have any record of that happening in history before? Or this is a first time. Um, dealing with those kind of numbers, or is it just the first time that we actually are able to um, study and quantify it? Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, the, at this scale, it's the first time that those kinds of numbers have been compiled. We started counting birds well in about, you know, the mid-1960s or so. Um, you know, before then, obviously, we had been losing things like brown pelican, uh, which went extinct in Louisiana by the early 1960s. Um, so that was very apparent because it's a big, spectacular, charismatic bird, yeah. um, and we knew that they were in trouble. The, you know, the good news is that we can do stuff about this, and we, we've, we've rebounded bird populations before. And so now, you know, even though pelicans were extinct as nesting birds in Louisiana, um, back. in the early 1960s, we now have more brown pelicans in Louisiana than any other state in the country. We have over 30,000 of them. So, so, but, but that there's a, there's a, another side to that. So what you're saying is that pelicans are still disappearing in other places, uh, but we are changing the pattern because we did what? No. So actually it was a, it was a nationwide effort and, and pelicans are rebounding everywhere. Okay. Um, and so pelicans are actually in reasonably good shape right now. We have some concerns because of climate change and their islands are eroding and, and whatnot. Um, we have fewer nesting islands than we used to, so we have more pelicans packing into those islands than we used to. But overall, as a population level, they're doing okay. And that was largely because we as a society, we as a nation, decided to ban DDT in the early 1970s. And it didn't take very long for brown pelicans and ospreys and peregrine falcons and bald eagles, all birds that were impacted by that one family of chemicals, and they've come back. Um, the problem that we're facing today with, with a lot of these other birds 
uh, it's much more systemic. It's much more um, incipient in how we have modified the world. And we have done that through habitat clearing, um, migratory birds in particular are really struggling, much our resident year-round birds. And that is challenges associated with migration. Like, so they collide into buildings because they get disoriented by the lights of our cities and um, feral cat populations and outdoor cat populations are thought to be responsible for you know, huge numbers of bird deaths each year. And probably that's mostly that naive birds. Because that was new to me. And that is something we can definitely do something about because I have Ooh. lots of friends who, who feed feral cats. So uh, right. my, my own stepdaughter is a cat person and she has indoor cats, as she calls them, and then outdoor cats. And the outdoor cats are feral cats that she puts food out for on the porch. And so I'm sure that the food helps cut down on how many birds they kill, but nonetheless, um, that's why they're out there. Well, it doesn't. And because cats don't necessarily kill because they're hungry, they kill because they are curious and they play and, right? So feeding outdoor cats doesn't necessarily suppress their desire to, you know, tackle a bird. Mm -hmm. um, and the number is estimated to be, you know, this is through Smithsonian, through a number of, of studies, what we call a meta-analysis, they estimated 2.4 billion birds per year oh. killed by, by cats. How so, do we yeah. have any idea when I hear these huge numbers? I go back to that number that science uh, yeah, article the science magazine. what? The science magazine is about three billion in total out of twelve billion. That was I was going to ask you how many. What is the estimate of how many birds there are now? Is that like the U.S. only? The U.S. and Canada. U.S. and Canada. Okay. Yeah, but there was a study that just came out. Well, three out of twelve billion. That's substantial. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's thirty percent in in fifty years. Wow. So, and it's it's to the point where. We can, you know, people who have been bird watching since the 1960s, their entire lives, they've seen the difference in bird migration from when they were young to what they see today. Uh, they, they see a lot fewer birds coming through the Gulf of Mexico each year. Um, so about all, about one third of all the birds that used to come through the Gulf of Mexico are now gone. Um, and that is noticeable. So. And it's not possible that there's any just less migrating. Is that right? Is, there, is it possible that that's a factor? No, it is not. Birds migrate. Not. Period. Birds, the vast majority of birds migrate because they are genetically controlled. They they are cued by changes in day length, um, and and in some cases it's modified a little bit by food availability and whatnot. But they still have the drive to migrate. So yeah, it's not because populations have shifted necessarily or gone somewhere else. Um, it's it's because that those populations are just disappearing. All right, so um, I guess I have to ask, you know, what what are some of the key measures um, that we humans can um, uh, do in our uh, own little world or, you know, uh, I, I talk a lot about my garden because it's unusually large for an urban site, which is why um, I overcame my resistance to a big old mansion-y looking house that didn't feel like that was appropriate for me. I'm coming out of an apartment in New York when I first came here. 
And I looked up at this wedding cake that my husband was saying, look, let's buy this. And I was saying, okay, you go in. <laughs> but <laughs> the garden is huge and I, I have nothing but green around me. Um, mm -hmm. Although I, that's another thing I, I don't want to forget to ask you about. My garden has become totally overtaken by Chinese fan palms. And I want to talk about whether that factor is related to um, birds being able to use my garden uh, as a place to, um, to alight from time to time. But back to the question of in general, what can humans, an ordinary human like me do to contribute to um, uh, trying to help solve the issue of the things that are killing birds? Right, and it, it feels totally overwhelming. Um, but so if you go to actually 3billionbirds.org, uh, there are a number of recommendations um, that that website offers. So one that's a very simple one that you allude to is what you can do in your own yard. And in general, native plants are much better for birds than non-native plants. Native plants have evolved with the birds, and so they provide the fruit the insects and um, all of the, the pieces of the food web that, that, that birds depend on. Um, Non-native plants, right, invasive things or things you might buy at a um, chain store that aren't native to the Americas, won't host the insect population, aren't evolved with our birds, and so don't provide the food resources for them. They may look pretty, um, but they don't provide food for birds. So that's a really easy one that almost anybody can tackle. Put out a native plant in your yard. And then once you put out one, put out another one and then put out another one and then keep going. Um, and I assume that on that site, 3 billion birds, they help you identify which those native plants are. I mean, I kind of have a, a clue in a, a couple cases, but really I think my garden has just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah. But, uh, uh, by the way, there's one weed that grows that, you know, I tend to uh, want to cut back, but I think actually birds like it. What is it called again? It's a vine that crawls over my fence with between me and my neighbor. Um, oh God, I'm just, uh, not cat's claw. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to remember the name of it, but um, anyway. Uh, it, it, it's just, uh, it's that weed that just grows everywhere. Um, Mm. I don't I don't you, so that website doesn't have the specific recommendations, but actually Audubon's website does. So if, oh, okay. you, if you Google native plants for birds, the native National Audubon plants. Society has a website with a database. If you enter your zip code into that website, it will pull up a list of native plants to your area. Um, that are beneficial to birds and it'll help you, uh, you know, if it's a shrub, if, it, if you're looking for fruit bearing trees, right, if you're looking for something just for a little patch of garden or a big tree, it'll tell you which size plant it is, what kind of birds will it'll attract. Um, and then also on our website, we have a list of local resources where you can buy native plants. Not I know one of them is Delta Flora. And I've, I've been down to her oh, site. I don't know if you're familiar with, are you? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've purchased some things from her. Um, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, Audubon, it's called audubon.com, just plain audubon.com. 
No, well, we're audubon.org, but if you go to if you Google native plants for birds, it'll be the first thing that pull that pops up. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. Well, that's important, and that's that's relatively easy. Um, relatively you know, because easy. we can buy those native plants not only at a specialty uh, gardener that deals with them, but uh, pretty much any um, nursery is going to have a mix of uh, the stuff that comes from elsewhere and the stuff that comes from here. So uh, we can certainly do that. Are there a couple particular ones that are um, just amazingly perfect for um, uh, birds that you wanna to mention to me? Oh yeah, I mean, there's, well, so our live oaks are actually fantastic uh, food trees for birds. So- um, Oh, that's why I have a huge pelican hatchery outside of my house and I have to rescue- from Esplanade Avenue streets all the time drives me yeah. nuts. Yeah, no, those live oaks are are great for birds. They, you know, oaks in general provide a lot of native insects that birds depend on, especially during migration. So um, those are great trees. Um, some really simple ones are things like purple coneflower. Uh, purple what? Coneflower. Coneflower. Oh yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. I've tried to grow that in my garden and it, it has not taken. I, I don't have a tremendous amount of sun because all of all those Chinese fan palm, it's like a, it's like a whole, um, I don't know, mantle over the entire garden. So yeah, uh, we, we, we're shade. shade. And some of it's trial and error too, you know, um, depends on the soil, depends on the lighting, depends on the water. You know, so, I mean, I've planted things that just don't take, and then I plant other things that do really well. And so I encourage- Well, them. I have clay soil. I have clay soil. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know how, what to say about water. I mean, uh, we, we, you know, we get plenty of rain in New Orleans. So uh, we do have these dry spells, like we're in one right now. Mm -hmm. I've got to get out and water things that I just planted recently. But um, uh, it does drain out into on a, onto Esplanade Avenue, but usually we have a good, pretty good absorption because there's just a lot of there's a lot of soil, yeah. that, uh, uh, which is a good thing. Um, yeah. But uh, okay, what else? Yeah, scarlet sage is one of my favorites. It's scarlet it's what? Scarlet sage. 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 It's a salvia. Sage, sage right? Yeah, okay. It's a native salvia with a with a cute little red flower, and it attracts hummingbirds. Um, and it's really easy to grow. It, once it once you get it started, it'll propagate itself by seed, and um, is very easy to grow. Okay. Um, other one, you know, there's various kinds of sunflowers. Ashy sunflower um, is a is a real popular one. What's it called? Ashy sunflower. Ashy. Okay. Yeah, and so all of these bloom at different times of the year, right? So you can kind of get a nice mix of things. Another really good one is called red buckeye. Um, it's another hummingbird plant that turns into a small shrub. Um, and the shrub itself, it, it's one of the first thing that, things that flowers in the spring, which is they open up just as the ruby throats are coming back across the Gulf of Mexico. So again, it's one of these things, it's like perfectly evolved um, with yeah. our native birds. So, so um, what about lant lantana? That's something that people it's, it's also not, recommend. Yeah, it's not native, but fortunately it is a really good pollinator plant. Um, okay. It attracts butterflies and, and hummingbirds and, mm -hmm. and uh, bees. Oh, that's why, yeah. So it's, it's not that's a bad one. It's not super aggressive or invasive in most cases mm -hmm. here. So, you know, it's a good alternative mm -hmm. to a native 
um, you know, if you can't get your hand on a native for that location mm -hmm. of your yard. Okay, well, um, I, I think I got a little bit of a hint on that and I love the website will help. Um, let me let me turn to the issue of bird watching. So I just missed, um, I think, as I understand that the peak season for migrating birds doing their little um, uh, uh, travel stop, pit stop in uh, the Louisiana uh, coasts, coastal area. Um, but um, tell me about that, uh, about that season, how it works and what happens between now and the next um, time when they come back up from the north to the south. By the way, in reading up a little bit about this before I got on with you, I read about a bird that flies from South America to the Arctic tundra to nest. And I was saying, what on earth? That is crazy. Why would a bird go all the way to South America and then all the way to the Arctic tundra? Can you explain that to me, please? There's a, there's a great quote by, I think it's a Dutch or Norwegian scientist. It's something to the effect of, you know, the, the distance of bird migration is only limited by the size of the earth. If the earth were bigger, birds could, could navigate it. Um, so they yeah, like to migrate, they like to fly? Well, it, it, over, you know, evolutionary time, it, it is a strategy that works for them. Um, and mm -hmm. so one advantage of doing that is that you're constantly following the summer. And so yeah. you're following the peak food resource around the globe. You just have to find a way to fly <laughs> and, and, and track it. Um, but yeah, red knots is a really good example of that. It's a, it's, a, it's a sandpiper that winters in the southern tip of South America and breeds up in the tundra. Um, there's a few other species that kind of do similar things like that, like the Arctic tern is another one. They actually make a figure eight loop around the, the Arctic, or I'm sorry, around the Atlantic Ocean. So they come down the Atlantic coast, they fly across and go down the um, African coast and then come back north along the South American coast. And it's this in incredible loop, you know, figure eight migration. And we think uh, our little trips to Destin and back are a big deal, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh gosh. Um, okay, so let me go to the issue of the bird watching because I was reading this article um, again, just before I got with you about bird watching per se and, um, and, and kind of how to um, really uh, acclimate yourself, so to speak, to the pattern of how you can go into your own garden or to the park near you, et cetera, mm -hmm. and um, look for birds. And I was shocked when we did the birding at Crevasse 22 River House, my art facility that we have for the Creative Alliance of New Orleans. And you came down and you went out into the woods with people and I had no clue that there were all those exotic looking birds in those little woods in Poitras, Louisiana. I mean, I was just really shocked. And so, so tell me about that because it means they're always there, but we just don't normally uh, have the, the pattern needed for seeing them, for, for yeah. finding them. Yeah, so, I mean, give me when, some hints. when you open your eyes to nature, nature opens its doors back to you. And so it's just a matter of um, being patient, often helps to be quiet, 
Um, but there's some cases where you don't even have to. You can go to that park and you can see the ducks and the herons and egrets along the edges of the ponds. And so, you know, bird watching is however you want to make of it. Um, you can explore your own backyard. You can travel the world. You know, bird watching is is very individual and in whatever you want to do. Um, some people like to do it as a group. Some people like to do it alone. Um, but over 47 million people in the United States are self-identified bird watchers. Wow. Many of them just put out bird seed and, and look out the window and, and know the birds that are coming to their feeders. And other people like me love to, you know, find pretty much every single bird on the planet if we had the chance to. Um, you know, it takes you to, to amazing destinations and, um, you know, builds great friendships and great memories. And, um, and it's very healthy too, right? So being in nature has been scientifically proven over and over again to be good for your mental health. Um, bird watching got a really big boom during the pandemic because there was nothing else we could do. So we all kind of secluded ourselves and, you know, people started discovering the birds in their yards. Um, and so and it was a very therapeutic way of connecting with nature. Um, so, so back to the uh, discovering birds in your own garden. So, you know, often I've told you, I keep hearing this little bird that has this very uh, uninteresting song, but definitely distinctive and catches my attention. So that's its purpose, right? Is to catch the attention of the other birds that it's uh, signaling to, but it just goes little peep, peep. No, peep, peep, that's it. That's all it is. And, um, and I really, I have recorded it. I, I, I will try sending you my last recording because what happens is there's always so much noise. I'm on Esplanade Avenue, so there's a pretty heavy traffic load on Esplanade. So it's hard to get something that you can really hear. But you did mention to me that there are ways of recording the uh, song that you're hearing and, and having it identified through apps. So remind me about those apps so we can share that with our audience. Yeah, and let me just double check. Are you do you have me okay right now? I'm having a little bit of uh, internet connectivity slow down. Yeah, you are. Um, you have a little bit of um, it's 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 okay. Uh, you know, it's a little lag in your uh, your uh, image and your vocal, but it's okay. It's not too bad. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Yeah. So the the two apps that I would recommend one is called Merlin, M E R L I N, like the wizard or the falcon. Um, it's, a, it's an app produced by Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and it has an artificial intelligence software built into it where it uses a database of vocalizations and compares your recording to that database and provides suggestions on what you might be hearing based on your location. So that's a really, really helpful app. It's not perfect. It's prone to error. Um, it's really hard to match up all the noises in the world to, you know, a database of birds, but it's getting better with time. Um, another really good app is called iNaturalist and it uses the Seek. Uh, iNaturalist? iNaturalist, right. Okay. Uh -huh. So if you're a naturalist, you're iNaturalist. Okay. Um, and it uses a, another artificial intelligence program um, to offer suggestions. It's not quite as good for vocalizations, but the nice thing about it is that it's a kind of like social media for naturalists. And there's this whole community of people out there 
that will go into that program and help other people identify what they've been seeing. So it works not only for bird vocalizations, but for plants, for insects, for fish, for termites, for oh, termites? Know, anything Wait. you can think of, any natural living organism, the shells on the beach. It has a whole community of people that are experts on those things and will guide you in identifying uh, what you're finding out there in the world. Well, what I'm finding right here in my house since this Friday, I have to vacate at 7 a.m. and come back Sunday at noon after the house is tented. For, uh, yeah, it's, it's not the big Formosan um, guys. It's these little beetles that I think at one time came into our house from some wood that we bought from, you know, uh, uh, yeah. one of the big, you know, Lowe's or, or Home Depot. And it turned out to have these things in it, which we didn't know. My husband used it to make some artwork. We had, we had to tent the house back then. And now that was in the eighties. And now here we are again, having to do it. And I, mm -hmm. I know that a good part of my, the old maple floor I had in my living room is pretty much gone. Yep. And if you had a, if you had a picture of those little creatures, you could upload it to iNaturalist and somebody would identify it for you. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't have a picture <laughs> of them, but the company that uh, does our tenting, they, they, they knew what it was. Yeah, yeah. They, they did it. Um, now I'd like to talk to you about uh, sort of another side of the bird issue because um, we have some bird issues here that are, are just in a minor way annoying and I mean, I overcome it easily because I'm pro-bird, not anti-bird, but the crows wake me up every morning about 5.30 in the morning. And sometimes I can go back to sleep and other times my mind starts racing and I, I get less hours than I would like because I'm kind of a late night person. So I usually am sleeping, going to sleep later. So when they wake me up at 5.30, I can be pretty annoyed. In fact, I've been trying to, I want to buy the expensive earplugs that really do block out, block out noise um, and see if I can uh, use that as a way. But um, the crow population does seem to have grown and every once in a while we'll get a kind of like a swarm of them. Uh, they will just decide to have a, I don't know, a convention in our backyard. And then it can be pretty wildly over, uh, overwhelming. And other times it's just that, that 5.30 in the morning thing that kind of drives me a little nuts. Towards the end of the day, they'll be talking a lot with each other. What are they talking about, by the way? Do we have any idea? I mean, what, uh, oh, this is a pet. So, most of the crows that I hear early in the morning, I would hear them go, you know, whack, 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 four times. Okay, I've counted, sometimes five. But lately, there's a guy out there who's going eight times, whack, 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 whack. And um, I've been intrigued about that crow versus the, the other crows who are just, uh, you know, um, making their signal four times as opposed to the eight times. What's that all about? Oh man, that's a tough question because, well, first there are two species of crow. We have fish crow and American crow and they don't normally mix with each other, but sometimes they do. Both of them form large flocks. They're also very social creatures. They're incredibly intelligent. And there's probably a lot about their vocalizations that are communicating information to each other. Um, this much I can here, figure out, but what are they communicating? Well, they're communicating about all the things you might communicate if you're a crow. Food, breeding opportunities, uh, where the roost is that night, uh, where the roost is going to be, where the roost has been. 
um, you know, how to find each other. So they're, you know, just very they, uh, one, one of the things I've wondered is, do they like, well, a couple, let's say, that aren't they fairly monogamous, some of them? During the nesting season, they are, yeah. Yeah, and they so nest early, so they nest from, they start nesting in February, March, and uh, their breeding season will end kind of in June, July. So we're in the nesting season now, but then the young birds, once they get booted out, they start to form social groups, even at this time of year. Um, and so or bigger and bigger. they push each other out of the nest, which is what happens with these night herons who have adopted Esplanade Avenue on my block, the 2300 block as a rookery. And um, we're having to rescue babies that get pushed out of their nest all the time. Um, and actually the one that we just rescued, which we named Esplanade and took up to Audubon Zoo, which I hope wasn't injured because I know if he's injured, he's, he's, he or she is going to be um, euthanized. And I'm just, I'm pretty sure it was not injured even though it dropped like a rock and it's, it was small, only about kind of that big, you know, it's not even at the adolescence of the ones that are really fighting with each other. And, you know, uh, what is that all about? What is that fighting and pushing other siblings out of the nest all about? Is that some sort of basic survival strategy? Yeah, it is. I mean, survival of the fittest sort of thing. Um, you know, one thought is that that the adult, you know, the parent egrets and herons, night herons will produce more eggs than they can normally raise in a year. Um, but it's sort of a buffer in case they have a really big boom year in terms of food, they can feed all the babies. But that doesn't happen all the time. And so most years food is limiting. And so one dominant chick starts to grow up faster than the other one or other ones, or maybe two or three grow up faster than the one runt. And eventually, you know, nature takes its course and removes the weakest individual from the, you know, from the gene pool. And so the ones that survive are the, you know, the fittest and the, the, the strongest of the bunch, the most likely that are going to survive into adulthood. So, so so the, it's, a cruel, it's a cruel world, but, um, you know, that's kind of how they've evolved. And then again, if they have a really, if, if there's a boom year in terms of food resources, then potentially the parents could raise all four of the chicks, you know, that year. Um, so but, it's sort of sometimes a what what it is is the parent cannot physically in a day produce uh, enough food to feed all of the chicks so that a couple are going to get some food and a couple are not. Is that how it works? Precisely. Yeah. So instead Ooh. of like distributing the food evenly and then nobody survives, they preferentially feed the biggest and the strongest. Mm. So at least some of you them. Know, that's it's, kind of um that's cruel. It's, a it's, not how we, it's not how we do it as parents. No, it certainly isn't. In fact, I just had a meeting with somebody earlier today, um, a, a Mercadel, and I said, I'll bet you there are hundreds of Mercadels in New Orleans. And she said, no, there are thousands, <laughs> you know, because grandparents in the older days were having like, you know, 15, 16, 17 kids, and then they were having kids. And then, so you have these reunions that can literally be a couple thousand people. That just floored me. But you know, Eric, I could go on forever with this um, uh, and I'm, I'm eating up my show. I've got to get a couple other people on. So I, I'll, I'll have to stop here and we'll pick up and do some more at another time. Um, but, but please keep me in touch 
on the fall migration, I, I guess, as you say, I've, I've pretty much missed the spring migration. I do want to do birding at the crevasse because it was amazing, as I said, how many exotic looking, beautiful birds you pointed out in our woods right next to the river house where we have art exhibits. So um, let's definitely plan ahead for the fall and tell me when you're coming and, and let's organize um, uh, some bird watching on, on that property. Yeah, but October, October and November would be really good for fall. October, yeah. And we usually kind of have an opening of the art season in October. So that would be a great time for us as well. Okay, well, um, stay in touch and uh, please share with me any kind of um, you know releases on things that are happening uh, that we can put out in our newsletter. Well, one thing I will plug just real quick is that actually okay. this Saturday is World Migratory Bird Day. So even though migration is kind of wrapping us, wrapping down for us, um, there's all sorts of uh, events going on um, related to World Migratory Bird Day. In this region? Yeah, there'll be, um, if you, I, I'm not sure of anything specific to New Orleans offhand. I, I'm sorry I didn't. But in the region at all? Yeah, there, I mean, we have we have uh, activities going on in our offices in Arkansas, and um, we're doing a, the bird banding, um, our monthly bird banding on Sunday in Baton Rouge at Blue Bonnet Swamp. Um, if people are interested in that, they could reach out. Um, so, you know, and it's a, it'll be a nice weekend to get out. I think Saturday is actually going to be a little rainy, which is the 14th. Um, but that, that whole weekend, go out, look for birds. And if you contribute your observations to eBird.org, um, it'll go into this massive global database um, about birds to help us understand how they're doing. So That's great. keep an eye on social media for different things and different um, events going on. Great. All right. But you please uh, think of me in terms of your press list, what the things that you normally put out and um, just add us to your list. Um, Eric Johnson, I think anybody listening to this now knows why he's my favorite um, go-to bird nature guy, because um, he just, he's got the answers. And I uh, very much appreciate your commitment and what you're doing. And uh, we can all do our share. Um, uh, if you have anything in writing right now that uh, is of, of currency, uh, send it to me. We'll put it in our newsletter and I'll definitely have some item on this in the newsletter. Don't forget to send me your photograph and your three sentence bio. Okay. That's well, very important. I, I think I sent that card. to you yesterday afternoon. Oh, you did? Good. All right. Then yeah. I've already pushed it on. Oh, I'll send you some more stuff though, just to make, just to fill your inbox. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Eric Johnson. And um, see you another time soon, hopefully. Okay. Appreciate right. you. Bye. Bye. -bye.